0: That is the awesome reality, even in the midst of the storms of life and the great challenges. Our one rock and refuge, our stability, is the living God, and he's still in control. Would you be seated as we just go before the Lord now in prayer? Would you just bow your heads in the same heart of worship? Would you just close your eyes and seek first the king and his kingdom? Lord, it is a great joy for us to be able to come into your presence. As it says in the Psalms, praise the Lord, O my soul, and bless his holy name. Forget not any of his benefits. So, would you do that right now? Would you just praise the living God? Exalt his name. Would you tell the Lord that he is your rock and your refuge? and your confidence. Would you once again ask the Lord to revive your heart, to increase your faith, to give you a vibrancy of love for him, to cultivate a rest in Christ? And would you now just take some time just to confess any sin that the Spirit of God brings to your mind? knowing that you are unconditionally loved in Christ. So would you bring these transgressions to him now? Would you turn from them and repent? For that secret issue that you think that no one knows about, but certainly God does, would you right now just open the doors And ask God to bring cleansing, healing, hope, forgiveness, love, as you turn from sin and trust in the Savior. And would you thank him that he is faithful, that he never forsakes those whom he has placed in a covenant relationship this son would you now just take some time just specifically to thank God for blessings in your life ask God to bring to mind the ways that he has showered your life with grace and thank him Would you now bring your requests before the living God? Matters for your own heart, people in your life. Would you ask the Lord to bring an end to this pandemic and to accomplish his purposes? in the midst of it. Would you pray for our first responders, our police, firefighters, EMS, all in our medical community? Would you pray and ask God for protection? Would you ask the Lord to give them encouragement and thank them for their service? Lord, it is such a delight to be able to worship you. Would you right now just lift up all of our school teachers and administrators and all the students, everybody's trying to go back to school, whether homeschooling, private school, all the public schools, TSTC, MCC, all of the Baylor students. Would you pray for every teacher and administrator and for every student? Ask for protection and for the ability to carry on these educational purposes. Lord, we thank you for how we see you at work in our midst. What a delight it is to be a part of Fellowship Bible Church, to see how you are helping us grow deep and reach out. And so, Lord, these offerings that we've presented to you, whether we placed in the box when we walked in, or we've given online, or we've mailed them in, we do so as an expression of saying, God, we love you. It is a delight to worship you. And so, Lord, now as we turn to your word, would your spirit be our teacher. Shape us, mold us, fashion us into the people you've intended. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. We have the real distinct privilege of hearing from Dr. Ken Horton. I've known Ken for quite a few years now. This is a man who's been so instrumental in my own growth and development. I've learned so much from him. Uh, you've, you've been around Fellowship Bible Church. You've certainly encountered Ken Horton. Uh, he has been the longtime pastor at McKinney Memorial Bible Church. He has also been the chaplain for TCU. Uh, we're not going to hold that against him for all of you Baylor folks out there. Uh, he is also the, currently serving on the board of regents at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he is working and investing his life of launching multipliers and developing spiritual leaders and disciples around the world. And so it's a distinct privilege to have you. Ken, we want to give you a good fellowship (laughs) welcome. Thanks for being with us this morning.
1: Thank you, Grant. It is a delight to be with you again. And as Grant mentioned, he and I have had lots of great conversations over the years. And I've had the chance of being here and seeing God's good work in this place for, for a number of those years. We are in the midst of a strange time, but it will not last forever. Uh, this too shall pass. I just hope I live long enough to see it. So, uh, But I'm grateful to be here with you. Uh, we're going to focus on a passage that I think gives us some really important insight. Uh, and it's insight about building blocks. I've got four grandchildren. And uh, they are seven, two four-year-olds and a two-year-old one four-year-old said of his cousin he's my best friend cousin brother it's fun to watch uh, but they have lots of Lego type toys Uh, they're putting things together Uh, it's the most obvious when they're putting a toy together or some other structure together and it's amazing how the little two-year-old learns from his older brother and he has just awesome manual dexterity for a two-year-old They are learning language, the building blocks of language. The seven-year-old is speaking in paragraphs. Uh, She's a girl, and she sort of supervises her brother and her cousins. And uh, she is just an amazing young woman. Reminds me a lot of her mother, which is wonderful for me and challenging for her mother. And uh, it's just great fun to watch. The four-year-olds, they're talking in sentences, and the... One of the four-year-olds was ahead of the other, and all of a sudden the other one just zoomed and caught up. And they're just going crazy, going back and forth with their parents and with each other. And the two-year-old's still just grunting. He knows what he's saying. Nobody else knows what he's saying. But he's gaining the language skills in a way that God has designed us to do that. They're in the midst of learning how to deal with the relationships, the two boys, my son's boys... The four-year-old was playing with something. The two-year-old grabbed it from him. I don't know where he learned that. And the four-year-old took something else and in the process hit his brother in the face with his hand. Now, the two-year-old comes running to Papa, and I'm comforting the two-year-old. And the four-year-old, not liking that his brother has attention, starts crying and says, My hand hurts. My hand hurts. And we had a little instruction there. I said... Jacob, when you hit somebody in the face, your hand is going to hurt. And I'm not giving you any love and affection at this point to comfort you for the consequence of your own choice. That's an important lesson for you to learn. He looked at me like, what is he talking about? But he's going to learn because you make your choices, but you don't get to choose your consequences. So it's just great fun to watch that happening. They're putting the building blocks of life together. And when we come to Ephesians 4, Paul is trying to help his readers put the building blocks of spiritual growth together. He's trying to help them understand how they can enrich the relationships of life that God uses to bring about fruitful ministry and spiritual growth. Uh, The Ephesians is a great letter. The first three chapters about what God's done for us. God has, the triune God has brought salvation. The Father loves us. The Son redeems us. The Spirit seals us. We're rescued from a desperate circumstance. We're put together in the body of Christ. And God's doing something so that not only does the watching world see the glory of his grace, but even the angelic beings are instructed about how great and mighty a God he is. And so, when he comes to chapter Four, he's just broken forth in celebration. He says, oh the uh the depths he says he says, "God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we ask or think. God's got plans that are even bigger than you can imagine. I love to think about that in terms of my grandchildren. God's got amazing plans for them, and he has the same plans, not like theirs, but a similar Abundant plan for you as well. So turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, and this passage, which is something we'll look at closely in a couple of places and just j- briefly survey in some others, is about the building blocks that are essential for healthy, fruitful relationships. Let me read verses 1 to 3. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These verses tell us about a defining Posture. It is a posture of humility in which you are concerned about others. You're able to obey his instructions in Philippians 2 where you look out after the interest of others and not just yourself. Humility is a life that is anchored in the truths of John 15 and Philippians chapter 4. John 15 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. The writer of Hebrews amplifies that by saying, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Philippians 4.13 says, in Christ, I can do all things. And as we've seen, God has plans to use us and to work within us. In fact, he's actually preparing good work for you to do before you even get there. That's how proactive he is in fulfilling His purpose in our life. And the only way to be in a position to see those things and embrace those opportunities is to have a life of humility. Humility is making sure we have a we lens rather than a me lens on life. When it's all about me, 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 you're probably not experiencing humility. Humility is not saying, I'm miserable, I'm worthless, I can't be useful to God. It's actually saying With God's strength and help, and because of his purpose and plan, he has great things in store for my life. Humility is anchored in our confidence that God is at work. It is fueled by our gratitude for what Christ has done for us on the cross, and it is empowered as we intentionally depend on God's Holy Spirit. Humility is a learned quality. When my son was about 14 or 15, he had just gone through that growth spurt. He was moving from teenager to young man, and he was proud of himself. He was having those thoughts, I think I could probably handle dead. I tell fathers of a son about that age, I say, you know, this is the time to rough him up a little bit. Plant the seed of doubt while you probably still can enforce what you start. So that by the time he really can take you, he no longer wants to. And so that was my strategy. And so we were in that zone in our life. And I remember telling my son, said, Josh, I spent the last several years over and over again trying to make sure you had sufficient self-esteem. And I want to apologize. I really messed up. I should have focused exclusively on humility. Your self-esteem is fine. The humility is a work in progress And humility is a work in progress for all of us. Uh, but you do need to understand that it's inevitable. You will either humble yourself before God as an act of worship so that God can lift you up, or God will humble you. He will demonstrate to you that you need him. It says that if you're proud, God opposes you. The Bible does say if God is for you, who?" Can be against you. It doesn't say this, but it teaches this in these concepts. If God's opposed to you, it really doesn't matter who's for you. (laughs) Humility is an important reality. And if you're not living a life that is postured by humility, you will miss the opportunities to be a part of the building blocks of God's fruitful ministry in your own life, and in the relationships that you have in life. It's important for you to realize that humility is not demonstrated in what we say, but in how we treat other people. It is in the relationships of life. Look at the words he uses. Gentleness, patience, tolerance, pursuing unity. A person who is going to be useful to God has a posture of humility, where he follows Christ's example and looks out after the best interest of others. You see, humility strengthens the patience that we absolutely need in order to pursue peace and harmony so that the world will look at us and have confidence that Christ is who he said he is. This kind of humility is essential for the second thing we're going to focus on. And that is that God has a transformative purpose. A number of years ago, we went on a mission trip to the southern part of Brazil with our family. And on the way back, we stopped at Iguazu Falls. there in the middle of Brazil. Iguazu Falls are these massive saw falls. It makes Niagara Falls look a little bit like a leaky faucet. It is Awesome, huge beyond imagination, and there at this preserve, they have a butterfly habitat, and we learned all about butterflies, about the the process of the egg and the caterpillar, of course, which kids know about, and then the uh, pupa and the cocoon and the way the Struggle out of the cocoon is what allows the butterfly to be strong enough to fly. It was just fascinating for my children and for me. I learned some things I'd certainly forgotten since elementary school. But they are beautiful. They were large ones, small ones, all kinds of colors, amazing. And the word that we use to describe what happens for the butterfly is a word that Paul uses for what happens for you and me. God is doing something In our lives, even when we look like grubby little worms, He's working. And He has a destination for you. In fact, it's clear, we're destined to be like His Son, Jesus Christ. Free and beautiful and glorious in all that He's made us to be. God has a transformative purpose. Where you and I make the world's most beautiful butterfly look dull and mundane. And he does this in these verses in a very distinctive way. He is a God that roots his work on unity. It talks about the Spirit, the one one Spirit, one Lord, one God. I love what the musicians sang this morning. Uh, they had this chorus that was a doxological chorus that was thoroughly Trinitarian. And one of the things about Paul's letters, and particularly Ephesians... It is relentlessly Trinitarian and wonderfully doxological. God is a great God and our existence, our faith, our relationships together as the body of Christ are rooted in the unity that we found, find in God himself. And in that unity, there is diversity. He describes God giving us gifts, gifted people in this passage, gifted Members of the body in some other passages, but the leaders and the people together are involved in ministry so that each one does what God has gifted them to do so that they all make progress from that unity to maturity and stability and fruitful ministry. God's at work. He's using you and me in that process. 1 Corinthians 12 says we are gifted for the common good. And if you are not using the gifts that God's given you to be a blessing to others from a heart of humility, this body is less than it could be and should be in God's purposes. God has a plan and a purpose to bring about unity. And when that unity is taking shape, we need to know that there is two distinctive lives that we need to be aware of. It is a life of the old man that is destructive and disappointing and ultimately joyless. And it's the life of a new man who experiences that transforming grace, a grace that is mediated by the Word of God. We are told to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the truths of Scripture. We are told to be transformed by the the focus on the work of the Spirit as we are changed from glory to glory so that we know real freedom. Paul uses this same concept of metamorphosis in those two passages to help us know that God is fully vested in the transformation that will happen in your worship gatherings, in your community groups, in your accountability groups, in your discipleship teams. God is a God committed to transformation. He loves you where you are. He loves us all way too much to leave us the way we are. And once we understand that and we humbly position ourselves in God's purpose to fulfill that, we discover that unity embraces diversity... And that that is what stimulates maturity. God loves diversity. We live in a world that's really troubled by diversity. Uh, There's lots of conflict, lots of turmoil. When you look at John's picture of heaven, it's people from every tribe and every tongue. We're struggling to figure out how to relate together with people of different ethnicities. But that struggle will be over. In heaven, through Christ, because God delights in diversity. In fact, from Genesis to Revelation, one of the primary fingerprints of the revelation of God is that unity embraces diversity and unleashes creativity. It's pivotal for the concepts of marriage, pivotal for the concepts of unity in any area of life, It is at the heart of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. God is changing people in a grand scope that values both the unity and the diversity of his creation. Thirdly, with a heart of humility, clear about God's transformative purpose, there is an essential pattern. In verse 15 of Ephesians 4, he says that we should speak the truth in love. And as we do, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And then in verse 25, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This essential pattern involves both tender love and Tough love. The Bible says to be kind to one another. To encourage one another. To help one another. To pray for one another. To bless one another. Tender love. And we need an abundant dose of tender love in a world that is often harsh and hurtful. But it also says admonish one another. It tells us to deal with issues in life. Paul says to the... Believers in Second Thessalonians 3, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. That's tough love. But it's true. And so God gives us an essential pattern where there is both an abundance of tender encouragement and an appropriate dose of strong exhortation. It is both a pat on the back at times and a swift kick in the pants at other times. When I was in the Air Force in, in Turkey, uh, I was a space surveillance officer monitoring the Russian launch facility during the mid-70s. There was a Christian officer there. His name was Major Adams, and he was a guy that I went to for counsel. And I said, Major Adams, I want to be an influence for Christ here on this base. 200 guys out in the middle of the desert in eastern Turkey, just north of that juncture between Syria and Iraq come together, 50 miles north of that point. And he says, Lieutenant Horton, I want to tell you two things. If you're not going to work hard and be a great Air Force officer so that everybody else has to work a little bit less because you're doing such a great job, please don't tell anybody that you're a Christian. We got enough guys sloughing off and talking about Jesus. Nobody wants to hear about that. I had a strong work ethic. That was not really an option. In my home, there was a universal solution for every problem. More work. If you complained, you got more work. If you fought, you got more work. So pretty soon, we had no problems. Because I knew what the solution was. So I I embraced that. But then he said, if you're not going to live like a Christian... For heaven's sake, don't tell them you're a Christian. We got enough of those kind of guys already. Now that's tough love. But it was honesty that was absolutely essential. My wife taught love and logic. And love and logic is about letting the consequences do the teaching. And if you rescue your kids from the tough consequences of their poor choices you're going to hurt them. You're not going to be loving them. Let them have the consequences as early as possible when the price is as low as possible if you want them to experience the blessings of God. There's a great article in the Harvard Business Review from many years ago entitled, Don't Be Nice, Be Helpful. And the point was, if you're nice to your people that work for you and tell them they're doing okay when they're not doing okay. Not tell them the hard truth that if they don't make real progress, they're going to lose their job. You will have a situation where they'll like you short time, term, but they'll you they'll like you short term but they will be wounded by you long term. And so in the Christian community, there are times when we need to be honest and caring but say things that other people might not like because it's what they really need in order for us to help them. So if you're going to be useful to God and enriching fruitful relationships, you've got to speak the truth in love and you've got to be willing to be abundantly encouraging but wisely tough when you need to be. You see, loving honesty is essential even, and especially when it's tough. Now I want to say something about tender love. The truth is, everybody you meet needs encouragement. A couple of young teenagers came up afterwards after the first services, "We really enjoyed your sermon. I said, "You were listening. You figured that even that old guy needs encouragement." And they were it was great to visit with them a minute. When I went to Colorado this year, four weeks by myself. My wife is obviously in heaven. She's enjoying a place far more beautiful than Colorado. I made my mind to pray every morning to give me a chance to be an encouragement. To speak loving truth to people. In in the hot tub, in the lobby, along the trails... I'd run into people, and I'd just try to find a way to engage them and give them a little gentle encouragement, tell them how well-behaved their kids were. Parents don't hear that enough, and sometimes it's true, and if it's true, you need to tell them. And this one couple, I talked to them, and pretty soon it was obvious they were Christians, and so we began to talk, and they had a 6-year-old named Josh, which is my son's name, a 12-year-old, and those two boys were just happy, but the 14-year-old daughter was at another hot tub. And the next day I said, man, it was great to meet your family. And this lady was almost in tears. She says, I'm just a failure with my daughter. I said, what do you mean? We're just having conflict all the time. I said, your daughter's 14, right? Well, yeah, and she's mad at me and she thinks I'm awful. And I said, show me a 14-year-old daughter who's not mad at their mother and thinks they're awful about half the time. And, And that's almost a miracle. This is the zone you're in. And if you worry too much about whether she's happy at any given moment, you don't have a prayer with your daughter. Love her. Be honest with her. Let the consequences do the work. And see how God helps your daughter. My wife had the same kind of war zone with our daughter. And now my daughter has children of her own, and they could not have had a more beautiful relationship once she got back from college. And in her tears, she finally smiled. And the next day she told me, she said, you know, thank you so much. I needed somebody to give me a little perspective about the conflict we were having. Now, it wasn't church. It wasn't a community group. It, wasn't, it was just one guy who's had some experience trying to be encouraged to a, encouraging to a woman who was discouraged like a whole bunch of parents with teenagers are often discouraged. Speak the truth in love. And then, fourthly, in Ephesians four twenty-six and 27, it says this, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. And he tells them about the conflict and the the. Ways that stir up anger and all the filthy language. And at the end of that, he says, The remedy is to forgive because you've been forgiven by Jesus Christ. The remedy isn't for, to wait until they ask for forgiveness or they deserve forgiveness. Proactively and unconditionally forgive because you honestly and humbly understand. The great magnitude of Christ's forgiveness for you. Anger is inevitable because anger is the human response to hurt. You're going to get angry. You can get angry and not sin if you deal with it wisely. There are different anger languages. Explosion. We know that's wrong. Suppression that is controlling your anger while it poisons your insides. That sounds spiritual, but it's awful. Anger turned inward is another word for depression. It results in depression. And then the third language is passive-aggressive. All of us can speak those languages. Most of us focus on one primary way of expressing our anger. If I'd worn a purple shirt here today, I'm a big TCU fan. I was a chaplain of the football team. Some of you might have said, you know... What's that guy doing? And if you came up to me and said, what's with the purple? Oh, I didn't even think about it. The guy who is passive aggressive said, oh, no, I didn't mean it. I thought about wearing a purple shirt, but thankfully God helped me this morning to put on something else. But those anger languages are destructive to relationships, to groups, to churches, to businesses, to families. And the healthy way to deal with anger is very simple in this passage. You've got to be honest. You gotta say, I'm angry. You've got to speak the truth in love. This hurts, and I want to work through it. I want to deal with it. Then there has to be a sense of urgency. It says, do something about it before sundown. That's important. One time my wife was angry at me and I quoted this verse and she says, The sun will go down in about forty-eight hours. Just pull back. And for her it was about a she had a forty-eight hour rotation of the sun when she was upset but it wasn't 48 days and so we worked through it and then once you begin to deal with it the reason you forgive is not because they deserve it or even ask for it it's because Christ forgave you and with that as your starting point then you can start rebuilding the trust that has been impacted by the wound in your relationship. You got to deal with anger all over the world. As I've traveled, when I talk about anger, people come up on the edge of their seat because it's a universal issue. And when you teach your children and learn for yourself, how to address anger wisely, you are gaining one of the most significant skills in life. It is essential to healthy relationships. One final thing before we close. There's a passage in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, that Grant told me after the first sermon he's going to be preaching on, so he'll explain this more fully in a few weeks. But in verses 23 and 24 in Matthew 5, it says this. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first, and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. You see, there's a surprising catalyst for fruitful ministry that is rooted in this humility and honesty that we've been talking about. When somebody else has hurt you, you need to work through anger and forgive them unconditionally. But when you've hurt somebody else, which happens, right? Then you need to be humble enough and honest enough to go and say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? First of all, they'll be shocked that you did it because it happens so rarely. And secondly, God often has plans to open up opportunities for spiritual ministry to that situation because it changes the dynamic. They sense something of God's work in you that often makes them more open to that gracious purpose that God has not only for you but for them years ago I was in Greensboro and I met regularly with a guy who helped us with adult ministries we went to a particular coffee shop had breakfast and this particular morning it opened at six but it was ten after six before they opened the door now I don't know about coffee drinkers here in Waco but in Fort Worth They lose their spirituality about five minutes when, after the coffee shop should be open. Does that make sense? It just, that, there's something about that. And I wasn't really harsh with her, but I was stern with her. I told her something true, but I told the wrong person and I did it where other people could hear. Something to the effect, it would really help your business if you opened on time. She looked at me like, oh, what is this big man doing? Is this over with? And I didn't say anything else. As we walked in, got my Bible out, my friend admonished me. He says, I don't think we need to study the Bible this morning. I don't think that lady serving us is going to be too excited about us studying the Bible. And before I could sort of say, wait a minute, I thought, he's right. I Blew it. She brought the coffee. I'm thinking, oh, man, what am I going to do? And finally I got up and went back and put my head around the corner. I said, ma'am, and she looked at me like, what is he going to say now? And I said, will you forgive me? I was wrong to speak to you that way. I'm so sorry. If I needed to say something, I should have said it to your boss in his office. Will you forgive me? And she looked at me and she said, well, yeah, yeah. She was just ready to get that conversation over with. And, of course, I gave her a nice tip that time. (laughs) And her tip went up about 10% for the rest of the time I was in Greensboro. And eventually, she would hang around and listen to what we talked about regarding the Bible. You could just sort of tell as she served everybody. She suddenly was open to spiritual truths Because somebody was humble and honest enough to say, I messed up. So here's the deal. If you really understand humility before God, and if you really practice honesty that has the right blend of toughness and tenderness, and do it in the midst of the conflicts and challenges of life, God will allow you to enrich the fruitful relationships that he uses to make the transformation process flourish in your home, in your church, and all over Waco. The bottom line in Matthew chapter 5 is that Pursuing reconciliation puts the spotlight on the kind of humility and honesty that transforms our failures into some of our most fruitful opportunities. My prayer is that the next season, while we as we come out of COVID, hopefully in the next several months, will be incredibly fruitful as this body of believers Practices the humility and honesty that Paul describes in Ephesians 4. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these friends. Help them, encourage them, bless them, and uh, use them in each other's lives. In Christ's name, amen.